Good morning at 1.17 a.m. It's Tuesday, November 3rd. The day we've been waiting for has finally arrived. <laughs> but it's just 1.17 in the morning. We're going to listen to Joe Madison. here and thank you so much you know one of the problems that i have is that i don't know what questions to ask that you haven't already been asked and that over a million of, of people who have uh, purchased the book and and obviously reading it have already asked but let me ask you this are you surprised mary trump at the reaction that this book has gotten and and this and, and this, in essence the sales. I, I'm surprised by all of it, to be honest. Um, you know, the sales are great. Don't get me wrong, but what's really gratifying is the way it seems to be landing with people. Um, you know, I've been fairly isolated in the last couple of years, uh, so I didn't realize just how hungry people were for uh, this these kinds of revelations, uh, if you can call them that, or this kind of story um, about, you know, Donald's origins. So it's it's been really nice uh, personally, but also I feel like uh, we're, we're at such an inflection point in this country uh, between, you know, the, the coronavirus and the ec potential economic collapse and the way we treat our essential workers in this country, and of course, Black Lives Matter. It, it feels like um, that we as a country are ready to change things. I hope that's true. I've never felt so optimistic about that in my life, but of course, we're suffering horribly in the meantime. And now you, you said something, uh, I've been isolated for two years. Explain what you mean. Isolated in, in what way? What are you talking about? Well, you know, partially, um, I, I took the results of the election really hard, um, very personally, and it, it was it was difficult to watch um, not just Donald behave horribly, I knew that was going to happen, but to see how many people were willing to uh, enable him and either overlook or champion his most egregious behaviors. So uh, I, I withdrew a little bit. Um, from, then, from your family, from what, from your friends, from yeah, what? Yeah, just, what? you know, partially, I also live in a fairly Republican town, <laughs> so that was, uh, that in itself was isolating, um, but, you know, I, at the time, I was working from home, so it just kind of got easier to disengage a little I bit, see, not, not from my family, but, you know, uh, just, yeah. you know, from what else was going on, um, and then writing a book is a pretty... Yeah. isolating activity in itself now let, let me ask some of the this question and and it has to do with some things that have recently been in in the news mm -hmm. um, uh, just recently President Trump said that um, you know he he didn't really know John Lewis <laughs> he really said John Lewis should have gone to his inaugural speech and that he has he 
said he did more for black people than John Lewis did. I assume you're not surprised by, by that comment, but I'd like to get your opinion of, of, of that statement, that recent statement that, that, that Donald Trump has done more for black people than John Lewis. And what does this say about, uh, about uh, Donald Trump? Well, it's, it's despicable. And it, what it says about him is, first of all, like most obviously, he's the most thin-skinned uh, person on the planet. Um, the fact that he would outweigh John Lewis's extraordinary bravery and the extraordinary service he's done to this, done for this country over the decades, and just the the immense uh, gravitas and honor of that man against not attending an inauguration um, is even for Donald that's kind of breathtaking, you know. Although it doesn't surprise me, um, and it just it's sort of just another, it's more of the same that we've been seeing. I continue to be shocked by the fact that the media refuses to call him a racist. He is a racist man who just sort of wallows in his white privilege and uh, continues to use that privilege to keep, you know, to oppress people. It's, it's so, you know, I'm not entirely sure what it's going to take. But where to, did, all right, so where did this racism come from because your book goes into detail uh, and, and you're these are inside stories mm -hmm. you're the ultimate insider to be quite candid that has written a book so where where did this start did it start with the father did it, i mean where where did it come from the environment he grew up in did he have black friends where did it come from I think it's a combination of things, and certainly it starts in the family. You know, my, my grandfather was an unrepentant racist, and, you know, we, we know from certain business practices they were sued by the Justice Department for, uh, you know, discriminating against uh, black people who wanted to rent apartments in their houses, um, et cetera. But, you know, in my grandparents' house, racism and anti-Semitism and misogyny were just sort of in the air like it, how, it did, how did it man how did it manifest itself just to, you know ca the casual way uh the casual and derogatory way people of color uh jewish people and women were spoken of at the dinner table you know so like i can't point to one instance because it's just sort of the way it was did any black people ever visit the trump household no no i i mean i don't think so um i think my grandfather had a, a black chauffeur once, um, man named a very kind man named George, but that was the only instance I ever saw of it. Did George have a last name? I mean, I, I don't being... remember. I was I was very young, so no, honestly, I, 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 you know, that's usually I, the stereotype. You understand? Yeah. No, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. His name really was George, and I'm sure he had a, a last name, but um, that that's the only instance I remember. Wow. Plus, you know. Back in the 40s and 50s, Queens was not nearly as diverse as it, sure. as it is now, and Jamaica right. States was like 100% white. So if, if Donald was getting driven 
from Jamaica Estates to his 100% white private school and then going to his 100% military academy, 100% white military academy, yeah. there was no interaction. In interaction with, with people of color. Let me, let me go to another issue, and that is, do you think, or what do you think Donald Trump would do if he lost the election? And you know I'm going with this. There is a lot of discussion about whether or not he would willingly have a transition of power. And I'll be even, even more direct, that he would even leave the White House. Right. And, 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 and I bring all this up because as I read your book, I mean, you sort of touch on the, the psychology of what people are asking right now. Right. And, you know, I want to preface my, my comment with pointing out how absolutely extraordinary that we're having this conversation right. about the possibility that there may not be a peaceful transition of power for the first time in American history. You know, it's just extraordinary. Um, so as for whether or not he would concede, I think that depends on two things. First of all, if Joe Biden were to win, what is his margin of victory? Um, the larger the margin of victory, the more narcissistically injured Donald is going to be, <laughs> and the more he's going to need to protect himself from that pain. So he'll make up some excuse. You know, he, did, he was the best president ever, and the American people don't deserve him. So he's going to do something much more important, like be a commentator for OAN or something, right? <laughs> if the margin is small enough for doubt to creep in, the second thing that we need to consider is the people around him. And that's what worries me more. He's surrounded by a bunch of yes-men and grifters who are benefiting enormously from Donald's position in the Oval Office. They do not for various reasons, either because they're getting so much power or money or because his position is protecting them from going to jail or something. You know, they don't, they're not going to want him uh, to leave for, because they're benefiting so much. And this is something, a theme that is, uh, is driven throughout the entire book. I mean, yeah. this has been pretty much is the way he's done business that, that you've written about in the book too much and, and never enough, correct? Yeah, and you know when I started writing the book and yes. and for, formulating it, basically the one thing that struck me so much was exactly what you're pointing to: these through lines that start with my grandfather and right. go all the way to the Republican Party today. It, it's fascinating. And, how, and, uh, go ahead. No, just how at every step of the way somebody has has taken the baton to continue to prop him up or use him or what have you so he could continually fail upward. Why, why Donald Trump and not the, the other, uh, why not the other brothers? Why not other members of the family, including the, the sister? Why well, Donald the, Trump? A woman in my family would never, I mean, my grandfather was a very misogynistic. Women were second-class citizens in his eyes, and he would never in a million years have, have given any of his, either of his daughters, any kind of power or attention even. Um, and my dad, as the oldest, should have taken over, but right. he was just, you know, he didn't have the right personality. He wasn't tough enough. He wasn't a killer, according to my grandfather. And 
you know, Donald sort of fit the bill um, and was much more useful to my grandfather than my dad was. And I assume he made himself that way. Uh, did, yeah, uh, did I, he perpetrate that in, in, in once he recognized that's what your grandfather wanted? Uh, he, yeah. In other words, he kind of turned it on, yeah, <laughs> for yeah, lack it, of a better phrase? No, it's a great question. I mean, it, Donald was seven and a half years younger than my father. So he had the benefit of watching yeah. how my grandfather treated his son who was not measuring up and meeting expectations, I right? So partially for Donald, his behavior was a defense mechanism about abandonment he felt when he was young. But it was also a way to protect himself from being treated by his father the way my father was treated. Right, got you, got you. Now, fi uh, finally, two, two questions, and I'll, uh, for sake of time, I'll, 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 I'll issue uh, both of them to you. And thank you so much for taking the time to, to be with us. Like I said, the, uh, I've watched these interviews over the last uh, several weeks, and they've been interesting. Why do you think white supremacists are attracted to Donald Trump? And the second question is something we discussed uh, earlier. Should Joe debate Donald Trump, because some people are suggesting that Joe Biden shouldn't uh, participate in a debate. Yeah. Uh, as for the first question, uh, unfortunately, it's very simple. Um, you know, I think a functioning, one of the purposes of a functioning democracy is to contain the whatever percent it is, 22, 28% of the population who is actively racist, white supremacist, anti-Semitic, etc. Donald is legitimizing these people. He's validating them. And unfortunately, 100% of elected Republicans now represent the worst 22 or 28% among us. So why wouldn't they? They're getting away with it. You know, hate crimes are through the roof in the last three years. And, uh, you know, that's his base. That's who he's going to cater to. And he, he has no problem with what they believe. Uh, it's, it's devastating. Um, but, you know, that's the backlash that we're living through. And nobody is containing Donald. And Donald certainly isn't containing the white supremacists. As for whether Joe Biden should debate Donald, I, you know, I don't think Donald should be legitimized in any way. Um, but if, if Joe Biden felt that he should debate Donald, he should do it conditionally. And, and what uh, should be those conditions? Well, you know, release your tax returns, um, uh, hand over the documents that he kept from Robert Mueller, whatever. I mean, none of that would happen, but at least it would be drawing a line. Um, and I think it would, it would, it would mean that uh, Joe Biden was taking a stand and not playing into Donald's hands, quite honestly. I, I should never say final question because it's always based on the last answer. Exactly. But, but, I, but I, I, I have to ask you this. You're part of the family. You grew up in the family. Mm -hmm. Why did you turn out differently? It's actually a really simple answer. 
the most important thing and the best thing that happened to me as a child was I grew up in Jamaica, Queens, not Jamaica States. And when I was a kid, you know, I took the subway to school every day. So even though I went from Jamaica to Forest Hills, which was very white, um, you know, I lived, I grew up in a town that was at the time predominantly African-American. And I never understood the, the ways in which my family spoke about uh, you know, black people or Jewish people or anything like that because I love Jamaica. I love growing up in Jamaica. Simple as that. It, it, it was your exposure. Yeah, proximity and just knowing that, you know, the people I interacted with on a daily basis were good, kind people uh, who, unlike my family, <laughs> you know, never hurt me. So there you go. Thank you so much for, for being on the Madison Show. I really appreciate it. And, and um, it's, it's a fascinating read. I can understand why a million people have, have, have gravitated to the book. It is, it is quite the insider um, uh, look at this uh, at a time. I'm just also curious, do you think, you, do you wish that you had, the book had been published before the uh, first election? It couldn't have been, honestly, why, because why not? Because I didn't have um, the book sprang from the New York Times article for which I was a source. I so before the election, I felt like anything I said, even if it were in book form, would have been a he said, she said. You know, I didn't have any proof that I could point to that I had, you know, a, a solid reason for. Uh, coming forward. So so that article and my part in it uh, gave me a huge amount of confidence that I hadn't had before the election. And also, you know, I, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't think he could be elected because I'm a New Yorker. And, you know, we, ex we understand him very differently from the rest of the country. Um, but I didn't, I didn't realize to what extent. So you think we he are. was surprised? You think he was surprised he was elected? Um, I don't know if he was surprised, but uh, it cert he certainly wanted to be. So people who say he didn't, I think, are reading it wrong. Okay. Thank you. I, I mean, we could go on and on. <laughs> Mary, Mary Trump. And again, the book is uh, uh, Too Much or Never Enough and How Many and How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. It's an interesting uh, photograph. I mean, where is that from? A uh, 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 military school? Yes, it is. And, oh, okay. and, and I insisted that they cut any mil military yeah. identifiers because he never served his country, unlike my father. So, you know. But he did say he learned as much as the generals did while in military school. I think I read that. Yeah, I, I think that's a reasonable thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> we'll end there. We'll both be in trouble. <laughs> Hey, good trouble. Good trouble. It. That's right. Good <laughs> trouble. You're absolutely right. Thank you very much. God Thank bless. you. This was really wonderful. I really Thank appreciate you. it. We were listening to Mary Trump, the niece, the niece of Donald Trump. Her dad was the older brother of Donald Trump. And she released a book some time ago. 
I tell all book. Needless to say, it was not flattering. She was interviewed by Joe Madison on SiriusXM.com on the app. He's interviewing Common now, the rapper Common. about making an album while, you know, when, we, when all that was going on from the pandemic to to the civil unrest that's been happening and our, our people being killed, um, I wasn't thinking about making an album. I think, you know, I really needed that time just to take in things and see what I could do to contribute towards changing the situation. I got inspired, like, really, it's funny you said, like, it don't take this a day or a week. But I did get inspired pretty much in, in the later part of August to make this album. Um, and I think, you know, it was an accumulation of the things that I felt, but also things that I was hearing and things that I saw. And spiritually, I felt that music is, is something that is always healing for people. If it's made from that place, it could be healing, it could be inspiring, right. um, it could be empowering. So I wanted to come with the music that would be the soundtrack to what, you, what your shirt says, Sound, the soundtrack to voting, the soundtrack to, to what these protests were, the soundtrack to how we feel at moments. Um, and, and that's why I created a beautiful revolution. Part yeah, we should, we should point out for people watching and hearing uh, the T-shirt, these are not lottery numbers, although I might, <laughs> I might play the number. <laughs> when it's, uh, just because of the good luck. But 11320, uh, I hope it's a jackpot. You, you, you point out being inspired and, and, you know, around August, but you've been doing a lot of traveling, haven't you? You've been going to a lot of the, these cities and what are the, what are people saying? And, and are you hearing it from multiple generations, one generation? Oh, I, I've been going to polling stations also um, when I go to these cities. And the beautiful thing is you see a conglomerate of people. Like you see young people, you see older people, you see um, people of different nationalities, and you see a lot of black people in line. And it's a beautiful thing. And you can see the determination in their, in their eyes. And, and um, a lot of people, you know, are encouraged to vote. And are saying, man, we're looking for something new. And some people are saying, man, we're hearing that a lot of, that, that, that people are not voting in our communities. And they and I say, man, let's make sure that those things are facts. And even if they are, we need you to vote. Right. Go right. vote and, and encourage people around you. A lot of us, if we talk to family members and loved ones about voting and even tell them about people that are on the ticket, they trust you. Tell them, spread the word. And, and, you know, it may encourage them to go vote and actually hold them accountable to do it. Um, a lot of young people have been talking about the injustices and protesting, so they understand now that the vote is the next act to that. That's the next step. You, 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 can, you can tweet about it, you can Instagram, you can put up pictures, but 
the act of, of change is, is going out to vote and going out to create better environments in our communities. Yeah, and you don't, in common, I've, I've tell people on my program, on my broadcast, you don't have to fall in love with the candidates. Right. I mean, you know, because we're going to have, I, I had a, a Chuck Schumer on, and, you know, he said, look, hold us accountable. That, because that's what you're going to have to do after we get elected. You're going to have to hold us accountable. But I would be remiss, I mean, with the release of the album of Beautiful Revolution today, um, I got to tell you, it's, it's, here we go again out of Philadelphia uh, with the, the shooting of, the, of Wallace Jr. Um, you know, I, I, I'd like to get your response. Uh, what your feelings and I think well first of all I feel I feel um, prayers and and a lot of love and like compassion for his family his loved ones that's the first thing I feel that I understand yeah. he's a human being that and they lost a loved one right and then I also feel that what happens in Philadelphia is going to be an example of why we have to vote. Because if Philadelphia handles things correctly and the police officers that ended up shooting this brother, Walter Wallace Jr., 14 times, and from what I was told, shooting within 22 seconds of him, and, and it was a call that was made to say he was, that it was a mental issue. Right, right. That's what his mother called, as a matter of fact, three times before the shooting. So that, if an if elected official who has the power to make sure that these police officers are put on trial and letting justice be handled, if that doesn't happen, that's a prime example of why you have to vote. Because that district attorney or attorney general that person has a lot of power in decision making. Right. And we vote them in into their position. And by not voting, we are voting for the person that that actually gets in. Like meaning if we don't vote for someone and they get allowed to get in and they actually do the opposite of what we think, you pretty much voted for them because you didn't That's right. vote yeah. at all and you didn't right. vote against them. So I just, you know, I really hope that the people, the elected officials of, of Philadelphia handled it in the right way and justice is served, but it's just a testament that we got to go out and vote and we got to know who's on that ticket. I vote in Chicago, Joe, and it's like, I had to learn like who state's attorney right. Kim Fox is and, and learn who Dick Durbin is, you know, said it's these, right. these people who like, affects my our right. living and the living of my people every day. So, yeah, all the way down to your alderman, alderman. In, in, in Chicago. And our alderman, my alderman, and my, and my ward is a great alderman. She's, she's a great person. And, uh, you know, Alderman Harris, and, and she cares. She's been on, mm -hmm. she's talked to the youth in my program, Common Ground, and, and it's told, it told them a lot of, gave them a lot of knowledge. That's somebody that I can directly see is from the community, cares for the community. She deserves to be in office, to hold a position. 
Um, she's not, as you said before, we're not gonna agree on everything. Right. Yeah, we're not call, you're not you're not marrying her. Hey, and you can speak to this joke. you even somebody you marry, you don't agree with everything. Everything, and right. Like, she on, hey, like, she she's sitting over here sending me notes right now. <laughs> <laughs> but let me let, and giving me the side eye. Yeah, but anyhow, <laughs> let me let me let me ask about a, a personal. Where did your sense and spirit of activism come from? Growing up in Chicago, living in Chicago. I mean, before you were common, before you were who you are today. Where where did that did it come from? Parents? Did it come from being a protege of, of this person or that person? Where did it come from? I think it, it really came from Chicago. Black Chicago, me growing up, seeing people in the struggle, but also celebrating uh, like Mayor Harold Washington and celebrating who's our first black mayor in Chicago. Muhammad Ali also having a house on the south side of Chicago. You know, the Nation of Islam had a, a, has a temple, a mosque, you know, so blackness was around. And even from, you know, the cultural level of, of the, the gangs, it still was like some something about knowledge itself that was in some of that that environment. And that being said, you know, I was I learned what it is to be a black boy and a black man, and I I gained a responsibility responsibility and accountability to my community by growing up in Chicago and knowing and having heroes that were you know, black men and, and, and essentially black women like Dr. Maya Angelou and Nikki Giovanni and, and, and artists like that who were heroes. So that gave me my sense. And, and also too, you know, like the core of it is I'm a believer in God. And I think the, the you know, my the church I went to where Reverend Jeremiah Wright was the pastor called Trinity United Church of Christ was talking about being unapologetically black right. and unashamedly Christian. So I was seeing pictures of Jesus that were black. Reverend Wright was talking about social black politics in church. So that helped also. All those yeah. things helped shape me. Now, so let, this is a business question with the uh, album, A Beautiful Revolution. And I was on a conference call with um, musicians, record executives, poets, rappers. And one of the concerns they had is that a lot of protest uh, music, rap, poets, they're having a hard time getting the, and you would know this, better than I, and that's why I'm trying to formulate my thoughts on this, because it's not my wheelhouse. Getting the uh, record executives to really let particularly young uh, artists uh, get their protest music out, is that a concern that you're hearing? I mean, you're well established, of course, but you weren't always. And, and so how difficult is that? And what do we do about it, particularly those of us who are consumers and we want this message to come out well 
I mean, the the value of protest music is very powerful. If you think about what Nina Simone and Aretha Franklin and Harry Belafonte and Stevie Wonder, Sam Cooke, Bob Marley mean to the movements of the movements during their times, like KRS-One, Public Enemy, it's very valuable. I think it would be important for any artist who's making protest music, making music that is conscious during these times. First and foremost, you got to do it with a, with, a, with a true intent, with a sincere intent. And then with that intention, you also have to make great music. And also, like, we listen to, to Bob Marley because it's great music too, meaning it still has to be palatable. What I did with, with Beautiful Revolution, with a Beautiful Revolution was the music is still has the message, but it's uplifting. It, some of it is just fun. It just feels good. It uh, makes you move. I want it, you know, I want the music to be, to be, taste good going down and, and touch your spirit just from, from that level. Um, and yes, you will face obstacles from, especially being a young artist and, and wanting to say something. And it may not be the most popular thing or the things that some companies may not want to support, but that's what goes back to your intention. If your intention is to get the word out there and you want to do it, you got to just do it no matter whether the company says yep. yes or not. You can release music nowadays in any way and it still can get out there. And you, and, and for me, I, I want to say, I, I, it's an artist by the name of Offset who's from the group Migos who some wouldn't think that he would be down with doing political work. This brother is like one of the most popular new young artists, but he's, and his music is not like political, but he's still out encouraging people to vote and, and out talking and speaking on things. So some of it will come through your music, some of it will come through your action. But if you really feel it in your heart, you gotta do it. No matter yeah. whether your label says cool, or no matter whether the radio station says it's cool, or the people, you know, you, the popular, popular vote might not be with you. You gotta do it. I got, you know, you remind me, my generation, uh, Barry Gordy, didn't want Marvin Gaye. Yeah, to release, yeah. <laughs> you know, what, his what's album. Going yeah, yeah, what's going on? No, oh, Marvin, you got shown to it. But, you know, look what happened. Um, and Aretha Franklin, I remember, and, and I always share this. Um, you know, I said, well, how do I do my show? Aretha, you're, I mean, you're, you're, you, and she said, look, Joe, you've got to, you've got to have three things. One, you have to be authentic, yes. common. You are authentic. Thank you. Two, original, because that's what I'm hearing in "Say Peace," and the and and I'll definitely be listening to a beautiful revolution. But what you just talked about, you got to be original. And then she said, "You've got to be daring. You have to be authentic, original, and daring." And I and 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 I guess when I've watched you and your career grow, I see all three of those, I, and I hear this because clearly you take chances yes, with some yes. of the things that you produce, don't you? Yes, and thank thank you for sharing that first of all, because to hear that wisdom through you from Aretha Franklin is a blessing. You know, if I can't say 
this is something, this is a gem that I got for today. You know, like that, that she said those things and you've been able to share them. But yes, it, I definitely had to be and have to be daring because, you know, when I released my music early on, first of all, it wasn't just even received that well. And then as I evolved and started talking about my own personal experience and spirituality and different things that I had went through, whether it was talking about abortion or talking about discovering who God is for me, it wasn't the thing that was going to get on the radio. Right, it wasn't the right. thing that, that, that people were going to be dancing to. And I wasn't, it wasn't going to make me the most popular rapper, but I still believed in it. And I did it from my heart. And, and you know, eventually, sometimes, whether it was a group of 100,000 or a group of 300,000, would go out and support that album. And then eventually, some of that would grow because people grew into some of the things that I ended up talking about. Yeah. And that's yeah. what I think, you know, like, I don't just make music on, like, Beautiful Revolution is for this moment, but I believe it will be played, you know, years and years from now, God willing. It yeah, will. yeah. So, like, like, I mean, like, be, like the Marvin Gaye piece and, and Rita's respect, yes. and it, it, you're absolutely, it speaks to the ages, and, and, yes. and you've just described the daring part. Um, Look, I only have, I'm going to give you the last couple of minutes, if you don't mind. We could, we'll have to get together again. And, and, yes. and I certainly hope we can get together um, after uh, November 3rd. I, I want to, oh, we, yeah, right. You know, let's, and, and whatever happens. But let me ask, one of the problems I've been dealing with on the broadcast is trying to convince young black men and to be quite honest black men black women seem to be ready to turn out and vote you may be seeing this as you've gone to polling places but there's a concern that young black men may not vote uh, because of 1994 crime bill and and and, uh, and several other issues can i have you speak to them and 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 why and how can you convince them to uh, what what can you say to them what well, can you say to them a lot of us first of all i say i understand your hurt i understand your anger sometimes i understand not feeling like you're part of this process or part of even being thought about or cared about in this country but it's going to take your power and your strength to actually change that, to change it. It's going to take you going out and voting, which is a power of yours, and, and, and the strength to get beyond just maybe our own, like, hurt and pain and anger on it, because ultimately, you, we can say these issues that what politicians are talking about don't affect us, but healthcare is not a, a it, it affects black people. Healthcare the decisions that this president is in office now has made when it came to this pandemic, it affected you. It affected black people. The way he's handled this pandemic affected young black men and women all over. It affected everybody. That was an example of bad leadership. When we talk about going to vote, you also say, okay, this person may not agree with everything. I, I, I may not agree with everything they've done or 
even everything they do, but they have some things on their agenda that will help benefit me and benefit my community and benefit actually the country. And when I say that, I listen to what Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are saying, and, and they're, they're planning for what to do with this pandemic. Right. They're planning for criminal justice reform. Brothers, we all have experienced the system doing us in when it comes to criminal justice. Like when it comes to the prison system and us being targets for that. Well, it's people that are looking to change that. Not just on the presidential level. Yes, that yeah. is part of their agenda, but also on a on your local and state level. And when it comes to, to businesses, we open even if we open our own business or we want we want like they're starting to develop some businesses in our neighborhoods. Some of the grants and money that we can get to flow in our neighborhood comes from elected officials yeah. who can make sure that we the jobs come to the community when new developments are coming. But we have to know that. And the last thing I'll say is a lot of us have had the concern about marijuana and, and marijuana being legal and marijuana people serving long sentences because of marijuana. It's people out there that Thank understand that was, that was an injustice. And they yeah. want to reverse those sentences and take that yeah. out. Right. And, 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 so, and now and now some people are making millions of dollars, you know, oh, right. exactly. doing it. Look, man, um, I'm, I'm, I'm getting uh, from the executive producer slash wife over here. Mm -hmm. I got a rap. Um, this always happens. But um, I, I, I have tremendous amount of respect for you and your work and your insight and the fact that you are out there. And that's that is that's that is so important. And I just want to thank you so much for taking the time. Look, the album is a beautiful revolution. I love that. A beautiful, you know, it reminds me of Malcolm used to said a, a bloodless revolution. You've taken it from a, a whole different given it a different meaning, a beautiful revolution. And please, I wish it big success for you. And let's talk again. Yes, Joe, thank you. Tell your executive producer, your wife, thank you for having me on. And God bless, brother. All November right, 3rd, everybody go vote, y'all. Absolutely, yeah. This is it, baby. This is the number. This is yes, the sir. number. Thank you. God bless. God bless, Tommy. Good morning. Good morning at 2.24 a.m. November 3rd. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome Somalia and the world. BET.com online is reporting that activist D. Ray McKesson wins a Supreme Court case against a police officer that sued him for injuries during a 2016 protest published five hours ago, written by Paul Mira. On Monday, November 2nd, the U.S. Supreme Court sided with Black Lives Matter activist D. Ray. McKesson in a lawsuit 
filed by a police officer who was injured during a 2016 protest in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The protest took place outside the police department in response to the police killing of Alton Sterling, a black man. A struggle between Sterling and police ensued outside a convenience store where he was selling homemade CDs. The incident was caught on video. The injured officer who remains unidentified sued both Black Lives Matter and McKesson seeking monetary damages the officer claims McKesson should have known violence would result from the demonstration. According to Reuters justices threw out a lower court ruling allowing the lawsuit to proceed claiming that more Analysis was needed on whether Louisiana state law allows for such a claim. McKesson argued that his First Amendment rights shielded him from the lawsuit, which accuses him of negligence. That issue has yet to be resolved. Quote, the constitutional issue, though undeniably important, is implicated only if Louisiana law permits recovery, recovery under these circumstances in the first place. End quote. The court said in their ruling, the officer who brought the suit alleges he sustained serious injuries after being struck in the face by a piece of concrete thrown by someone other than McKesson. Litigation will now continue in lower courts.